James shows us a faith that works. Good morning. You guys ready? Ready for a Bible study? If you have your Bibles, turn to James. James chapter 1, faith that works. We're talking about temptations this weekend. Also grab your sermon notes out. Let me begin with a story. This is the Aaron Lee Ralston's story, maybe you're familiar with it. In 2003, he had, he had gone hiking alone near Robber's Roost, an old outlaw hideout used in the dying days of the Wild West, in the Wild West by Butch Cassidy. But while Ralston was climbing down a narrow slot in Blue John Canyon, a boulder became dislodged, crushing Ralston's right forearm and pinning it against the wall. For five and a half days, he struggled to get free until he was forced to do the unthinkable. Using a blunt knife from his multi-tool, he began amputating his arm below the elbow. Then he rigged anchors into the cliff, fixed a rope, rappelled 60 feet to the canyon floor, bleeding heavily through a makeshift tourniquet, Ralston began to hike. He had hiked about five miles when a helicopter search team spotted him, drained and dehydrated, but still pushing forward, the amputation saved his life. There's a book and a, a movie about his ordeal. How many, by show of hands, are familiar with what I'm talking about here? Maybe watched, saw the movie, read the book, or heard of the story. Yeah, there's a, a lot of us have. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, what should you do? I mean, he uses pretty violent language. He says, you should gouge it out, almost like find a screwdriver in your toolbox and rip it out. That's the kind of language that he's using. And then he says, if your right hand is causing you to sin, what are you supposed to do with it? Cut it off. Some of you are kind of hesitant about even saying that. It's like, ay, ay, ay. ay. Now, he, he obviously was using that figuratively and not literally, because if he was saying that literally, I would be up here with no hands or no eyes, okay? Anybody relate to that? Okay. Yeah, this would be one messed up place, wouldn't it? Come to our church. They have no hands or eyes. So he's, he's not talking about that. He's not talking about that. In fact, he said it would be better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Heaven and hell, this is what I believe he's trying to get across. Heaven and hell are at stake in what you do in dealing with temptation and sin. I mean, it's pretty serious. This is a pretty serious topic. In fact, this is what I've learned in my own life, that the more, that the more you experience the life-giving joy of knowing Christ Jesus, the more you will take the more you will take drastic measures in dealing with any temptation and sin that is keeping you from him. You're going to take drastic measures. That, that's the point. Now, James will teach us how to deal with temptation and sin in our personal lives, but I also believe that he's helping us to deal with a much bigger, a bigger understanding of temptation and sin. All you must do is watch the nightly news, and you will be confronted repeatedly with the question, why is there so much evil in this world? Oh, my goodness. It's out of control. It's crazy. And James answers that question by really teaching us about the nature of temptation and sin. So we've got a great study in store for us. And so you can see on your notes that we're going to look at three big ideas from our text. Every trial brings with it a temptation because that's the con uh, context. It's talking about trials, suffering, difficulties, and kind of moving into now temptation. But they're both related, trials and temptations. So every trial brings with it a temptation. The next kind of big idea is that every temptation has a consistent pattern. So when you look at sin and uh, when you look at temptation and sin, there's a pattern that's working deep within our hearts that you need to be aware of, and then every temptation can be overcome. That's where we're headed. But before we head there uh, and read our text and unpack these notes, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me once again as we ask for God's help 
to apply these truths, to understand these truths and apply them to our lives. So, Father God, we are delighted to be here today. We love your presence. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It tells us that in, in Psalm 1611. And it also tells us in Psalm 63, 3, that your steadfast love is better than anything in life. And so, God, we, we admit that temptation and sin have caused our hearts' deepest loyalties and affections to stray, propelling us to worship relationships and achievements and work and, and anything more than you, God. If sin took down Samson, the strongest man, Solomon, the wisest man, and David, a man after your own heart, then it can overpower, outsmart, and overcome us. So we pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, help us to see that, that you offer us something infinitely and eternally better so that we will take drastic measures to not trade the indescribable and indestructible joy we have in you for temporary pleasures. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said... Amen. Let's take a look at this text. Let me read through it. I'll read completely through it, and then we'll, you'll see that we'll kind of unpack it with our notes and walk through it. I added some of the verses from last week because I think it, they're all part of it. They're part of the context, and so it'll help us to really understand what we're looking at here this morning. James chapter 1, starting in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived. My beloved brothers, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning this weekend. And so let's take a look at our notes. Here's the first big idea. Every trial brings with it a temptation. Take a look at your notes there. Every trial brings with it a temptation. And this is what I found fascinating as I was reading through this, is that the same word for trial in verses 2 and 12, so we're talking uh, trial in those two. It actually uses that in the English language, trial. And then all of a sudden it moves in verse 13 to temptation. That's the same Greek word, parasmos. So the same word for trial, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, and then if we persevere in trial, we will receive the crown of life. That's verse 12, so verse 2, verse 12. And it's the same word for temptation that, he's, that they're using there for temptation in verse 13. So this is what it's telling us, really, the same word, <clears throat> the same word can have different applications based on its context, and so what we could say here is that trials are external pressures and temptations are internal pressures. But he's using the same, same word for both. And in using the same word for both, I think this is why he has to make this clarification in verses 13 through 14. Let no one say that when he is tempted, uh, when he is tempted, that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So here's your first fill in the blank. God tests us, but he never tempts us. Temptation comes from the inside of us. <clears throat> That's really an important clarification and understanding. So what he's saying here is don't confuse the occasion 
with the cause. And we live in a world where we do a lot of blame shifting. And so he's, he's really wanting to cut to the chase and say, hey, you can't, don't blame, don't blame the, uh, the occasion with the cause. The occasion are your circumstances or the trial with the cause. The cause is your character, your own desire. Remember what we talked about the last couple of weeks? It's not what happens to you, but what happens in you that makes you or breaks you in life. It's not what happens to you. It's, it's, it's not your circumstances. That would be the occasion, but it's what happens in you. That's the cause. That's, that's uh, it's your character. It's your character, and that's what he's saying. That's what he wants us to understand. Let me give you a quick illustration here. Is, um, so he's wanting us to not confuse the occasion with the cause. Let's just say that uh, an algebra teacher gives a test to the students to see how well they know the material. If a student fails the test, it's not the teacher's fault, but the lack of discipline in the student. And I know some of you are saying, well, what if it's a really bad teacher, okay? They don't really explain the information. I know, I know, but we're talking about a perfect teacher, and that's God, okay? And so, so it's, it's up to the student. So that's what he's saying. Don't blame God because you sin. Yeah, he orchestrates the circumstances. He's working on the circumstances, but the circumstances are the occasion. The cause is your heart. The cause is, is what's going on inside of you. It's your character, you can blame circumstances all day long, but it's ultimately really your character and how you choose to evaluate your circumstances and respond to those circumstances. That's what he's saying here. And so with this algebra teacher gives the test to the students to see how well they know the material, and if a student fails the test, it's not the teacher's fault, but the lack of discipline in the student. The test is the occasion, but the teacher's lack of, or the student's lack of discipline is the cause of his failure. Now here's the next point. I think it'll help you as we walk through this here. So we're talking about every trial brings with it a temptation. Next point, that there is a temptation in every adversity and prosperity. There's a temptation in every adversity and prosperity. In verses 9 and 11, he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. He's just saying that trials have a way of leveling the playing field, and we also know that the gospel has a way of doing that also. We talked about that last week. And so every failure or success, every loss of love or gained love, every loss of a lot of money or gain of a lot of money, if you handle it properly, it can move you toward the crown of life, as he says in verse 12. But if you mishandle it, it can lead you from temptation to sin into death. That's verse 15. So in every temptation, there... in. Uh, in every temptation, there is a temptation in every adversity and prosperity. So there's temptation, there is a temptation in every adversity and prosperity. So here's my question for you. So, so in both of those, you have some choices to make. And the, and the right choice would lead to the crown of life, the wrong choice would lead to uh, temptation, sin, and ultimately death is what he's saying here. So talk to the folks sitting around you and ask them this question, what is the temptation in adversity and then what is the temptation in prosperity? What is it that really actually tempts us? What's alluring us? What, what would be, if we responded wrongly to that, what would that look like? What would that look like in our own lives? Real quick, discuss it with the folks around you. What's the temptation in adversity and prosperity? Okay, let me start right over here with this group, this side. Okay, so you can yell it out to me. What's the temptation in adversity? What would be the temptation in adversity? To do what? To, to fear? To blame God? That's a good, good. Okay, that's good. Okay, anything else? Ang what was that? Anger, bitterness. Were you... Th Coward? Okay. You've taught on it a lot, like towering versus cowering. Oh, I like that. 
Okay, she said towering versus cowering. So we tend to cower. That's good. I just went off the camera right then and everybody in the overflow is like, what happened? What's going on? Okay, that's a good one. I like that. That's a good one. Okay, so that's so in adversity, I mean, self-pity, bitterness, we cower. Oh, what am I going to do? You know, and so, and so what about uh, prosperity? Prosperity, you, you nailed it with the tower, with the pride. What about prosperity? What, what, what's the temptation of prosperity? Greed? Yeah, ignoring God. Nice. Man, you guys are all over it. You guys are doing good. That first service, they were not awake. <laughs> so you guys have had your caffeine, you're up, you're excited. This, yeah, of course, this is 11 o'clock service. You guys slept in until 10, 30, 45 or something, didn't you? <laughs> you didn't comb your hair, did you? I could tell. No, you guys are doing good. It's good. That's exactly. Take a look at your notes here. The temptation and adversity is self-pity, bitterness, despair. The temptation and adversity is self-pity, which would be bitterness, despair. And in prosperity, it is self-sufficiency, an attitude of superiority, and spiritual lethargy is what I kind of put on there with us. So, self, so adversity would be self-pity. Prosperity, it would be self-sufficiency. Now, everyone has their own definition of adversity and prosperity based on their values and beliefs. Would you agree with that? So for, for, let's just say that one person defines landing that perfect job, that's prosperity, woo, and then adversity would be to lose that job. Oh, I'm overwhelmed. So everybody has, a, we all have a way of defining uh, prosperity and adversity based on our values and beliefs. But here's the thing you need to understand. Both are a product of doubting God's greatness and goodness. So in adversity, if I have self-pity, bitterness, and despair, and in prosperity, there's self-sufficiency with an attitude of superiority and spiritual lethargy, both of those are because I'm doubting God's greatness and goodness. Think about this. His greatness and goodness is bigger than any adversity and is better than any prosperity in life. Make sense? So, so okay, so let, let, let's kind of, let's walk that out just, just for a moment here. So why would I experience self-pity, bitterness, and despair and cower in adversity? Now, I may say God's great, God's good, but I don't believe it. Because somehow I'm, I'm thinking my circumstances are bigger than, than him. I'm doubting his greatness and goodness. That's the temptation. Temptation and prosperity, of course, would be self-reliance. It's just like, hey, of course I'm successful. I'm a pretty great guy. I mean, look, look at all the talents I've got. Well, let me ask you this. Where'd you get those talents? And, uh, and in fact, there's an interesting verse that's found in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What makes you different from anyone else? And, and it actually goes on and says that if what you have, it was given to you, if all that you have it was given to you, which really that's what the Bible says, Every good and perfect gift comes from God. And uh, so why do you boast as if it didn't come to you? And we tend to do that, and we tend to, when we go into prosperity, we just go, wow, I don't, don't need God. In fact, let me, this is going to be somewhat convicting to you, but let me, let me just say that if you find yourself really pressing into God during times of adversity, and then in times of prosperity, kind of taking your foot off the gas pedal, you're using God. You're using God. He's a means to an end. And you actually think that your prosperity is better than knowing God. That's a lie. That's a temptation. That self-reliance and, and, and spiritual apathy. If I have spiritual apathy and lethargy, kind of like, ah, you know, I don't really need to go to church and ah, I won't read my Bible today or whatever. What? You're missing the best part of life and that's knowing God. And knowing him is better than any prosperity you'll ever experience. So the temptation is, 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 is self-reliance, self-sufficiency in prosperity, and which is an attitude of superiority, spiritual lethargy, and then in adversity, it's self-pity, bitterness, and despair. 
His greatness and goodness is better than any adversity and is bigger than any prosperity in life. We get overwhelmed by trials and, and overtaken by temptations when we fail to put our biblical understanding of God's greatness and goodness alongside of our situations so that it can give us a correct proportion of things. That's all we do week in and week out here. I'm helping you to, to get a correct proportion of things, and I'm telling you, he's bigger He's bigger and he's better than any problems or any prosperity that you'll ever face in life. Don't be taken out by either one of those. And, and oftentimes you, you can say it and believe it in your head, but what you need is for the Holy Spirit to make it alive in your heart. Here's the next, next thought. So every temptation has a consistent pattern. So we, we need to go down deep into our heart. And so why would I be taken out by adversity or prosperity? Why would I go, go self-pity or go with, the, with an attitude of self-sufficiency with prosperity? Well, here's how it works out in our lives. And we've got, uh, here's another good question for you. You should know this one, but if you don't, um, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you right now, okay? But uh, what are our three enemies? As believers in Christ Jesus, we have three enemies that are, that are gunning for us. We've got three, and you need to be aware of all three of these. The Bible makes it very clear. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, tells us these three enemies. Uh, ask the person next to you if they happen to know what our three enemies are, real quick. Okay, how many are thinking, thinking three? You're thinking maybe the person sitting next to you would be one of them? Okay, don't, don't raise your hand, be careful, okay. Okay, that would make it four. You got four enemies now, okay. Maybe they're working for the wrong team, okay, okay. Okay, we got three enemies. Three enemies would be, anybody, help me out. Okay, us, us, sinful nature, some of I heard, a adversary, and then the world, yeah. The values of our system are the society. So I, I put it like this, self, Satan, society, I alliterate it with S words, easy to remember. That's all, that's all there is to it, okay. And so, so self, sinful nature, uh, Satan, we got an adversary, and then we got society, which is the values of, of our culture that are contrary to God. Now, this is what, the reason why I ask you that question is because James, he doesn't even mention our adversary or the world's values, two of the three enemies. He's dealing with our sinful nature. Why is that? Because neither, neither of those, our adversary, the world's values, can get a hold on you except through your desires, your sinful nature. I mean, well, the values of this world, they're just so overwhelming. And Satan, he's coming after me. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I understand that. But they can't get a hold of you unless you've got some issues right here. And this is, what, this is why he's kind of dialing it in, man, hitting the nail on the head. This is the root of our problems right here. It's our sinful nature. And, and here's the point that he wants us to understand. No one makes you sin. You sin because you want to sin. That's the point. No one makes you sin. You sin because you you want to sin. And I know, I know we live in a culture today where we blame our chromosomes, <laughs> DNA. I wouldn't be so angry, but, well, you know. You know my nationality. <laughs> so you just need to beware. It's like, don't blame your chromosomes. Don't blame your DNA. But we also bl blame our, our conditioning. I am the way I am because my parents put my diaper on too tight growing up. And I haven't gotten over it, and I'm pretty mad. Okay, conditioning. And then, of course, you got your circumstances. Now, I say that all with, you know, tongue-in-cheek a bit, but I understand, listen to me, I understand, and I know a lot of folks that have, have had... There are certain inclinations within their own heart. There is a DNA inclination towards certain kinds of sin and types of sin. I understand that. that it's, it's true. I also know that there are uh, there's certain conditioning. You could grow up in a really a bad home. I know that. Where there's abuse. Terrible abuse. I, I've heard horrible stories and, and have counseled and helped and 
people through that. I understand that. I also understand that circumstances can just beat the living daylights out of you. I understand all that. I'm not minimizing that, but I want, I'm telling you this. I, I want you to understand this, and this is what James is getting across. Those can all influence you, but they don't control you, and they don't define you. God defines us. Does that make sense? So, okay, so don't use it as, a, as, as blame, blame shift and put your blame on that. It's not what happens to you, it's what happens in you. It's not your circumstances, but it's, it's your character. This is what he's wanting us to focus on because otherwise you're trapped if you believe that all oh, this is controlling me and this defines me. That's not true. You can get help, you can get healing. The gospel is more power. God is greater, and God is gooder. Okay, I, I, I meant better than anything we face. Anything that you face. You see, you're doubting his greatness and his goodness. You're doubting his greatness and his goodness. And so, no one makes you sin. You sin because you want to sin. You sin because you want to sin. You always do what you most want to do. Yeah, but I, I, I want to read my Bible and pray and go to church more regularly and hang out with other fired up Christians in a small group. You always do what you most want to do. You always do what you most want to do. Let me give you an illustration. My boss told me that I had to lie or he would fire me. Didn't want to lie, but I had to lie. That's not true. You wanted to keep your job more than you wanted to tell the truth. So you did what you most wanted to do. See, that's the point that James is, is wanting us to understand. And really a smart pastor here back in the early 1700s, Jonathan Edwards, he put it this way. He said, you are free to choose, but you are always a slave to your greatest desire. That's your next fill in the blank right there, desire. So we're looking at the pattern of sin, and this is what works in our hearts and my response to both adversity and prosperity, and it starts with desire. Verse 14, he says, by his own desire. The, the Greek word is epithumia, and it literally means over-desire. What it's saying here is that sin is not simply doing bad things. It's putting good things in the place of God. It's putting good things in the place of God. Marriage, kids, grandkids, paycheck, career, any, any, any good things, but they become ultimate things in our lives. Anything you look to for a sense of worth and self-esteem more than God is an over-desire. In fact, it's more than an over-desire. It's a fatal attraction because I have to have that. That's what I'm living for. In fact, when you understand the context here, it's actually spiritual adultery. Because he's using language here that he talks about when, see, when sin is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and then when sin is, you know, it, it is fully grown, brings forth death. So you, he's got this interesting language that he's using. He's, it's spiritual adultery language. Now, what I found interesting is that I, as I've talked with people who have committed adultery, and, uh, and the temptation to commit adultery. People who commit adultery would say that it was, it was less about being unhappy with, with the spouse they had and more about how their lover made them feel about themselves. Very self-centered, very self-absorbed. Something happened in their life that made them feel insecure and bad about themselves and they needed the strokes and the adoration. They needed somebody who came along and gave them what this lover gave them. Fatal attraction. Very self-centered. It's okay to want to get married, have kids, be successful in career, or any number of things, but when, when getting married, having kids, being successful in your career is the way you feel good about yourself more then what God says about you and what God has done for you, it becomes a fatal attraction. And that's spiritual adultery. It's something you are adding to Jesus to be happy. And it's an over-desire. 
That's the, that's the language that he's using here. And that moves to the next word, deception. So you got desire and then deception. Notice what he says. And when he is lured and enticed. Those two words, lured and enticed, he's using hunting and fishing or fishing and hunting kind of words. Fishing and hunting. Oops, some of you just woke up. Some of you guys out there, woo, yeah, he's talking about hunting and fishing. I was wondering when Pastor Ray was going to start talking about those things. I am right now. Pay attention, okay? Here we go. So this is what he's saying here. So when he is lured, so that's like fishing. You put the lure out there, and you hide the, the hook with the big worm, and then this idea of enticed, kind of setting a trap. And so these words do not suggest brutality or force, but persuasion and attraction. The bait not only attracts us, but it also hides the consequences of sin. It's the same, I mean, it's the same lie told in the garden. Think about this, all the way back to Genesis 3. Same lie told in the garden. You can't trust God's greatness and goodness. You can't trust the greatness and goodness of God's character and commandments. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. That's, that's what the enemy was whispering in the ears of Adam and Eve. You can't trust God. You're gonna be happy obeying him. Come on. You can do better than this. I mean, that was, that's the lie. God doesn't have your best interest at heart. Well, think about that. When it comes to adversity and prosperity, what causes us to go into self-pity and despair and bitterness in adversity is that we doubt his goodness. We've got something going on inside of us. It's like, he doesn't have my best interest at heart. Look how messed up my life is. That's wrong. That's a lie. And then when it comes to prosperity, we go into this attitude of self-reliance and pride and lethargy because I actually think that what I'm pursuing and what I've acquired or achieved is going to satisfy me more than God. That's a lie. He does have your best interest at heart. He does love you. He sent his son to rescue you. I mean, it's absolutely amazing when you understand the implications of the gospel. You won't be happy if you obey, serve, trust, and love God, that's the idea. This is our culture, by the way. This is what we're bombarded with. Follow your heart, be true to yourself, create your own road. That's suicide. That's the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water, Christ, for, for broken cisterns, 2.13 of Jeremiah. That's insane, but that's the deception. I see people all the time chasing that, and it just breaks my heart. I was like, oh, you gotta be kidding me. What are you thinking? Well, they're not, they're deceived. And so that leads to this next thing, daydream. I put daydream in there because I, I think there's a, it's conceived, so then desire when it has conceived. So you got desire, you're deceived. So this is the pattern of temptation and sin working out in our life. So. So desire deceives, so, so desire for a good thing, but it becomes an ultimate thing, and we're deceived into thinking that this is going to make me happy. And then before long, it, it captures my heart. I begin to daydream about it. Now, I'll give you plenty of references here, biblical references, cross-references. You'll need to study most of these on your own, but let me give you a couple here. Matthew 5, 21 and 22, and then 27 through 28. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, and he's trying to help them understand what the law, why the law was giving, and the, the importance of the law, the relevancy of the law. He says, it's been said, you shall not murder, but I say... Here's the appropriate application of the law of not murdering. He says, but I say, if you have animosity in your heart towards your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. That's where murder begins. It begins in the heart. That's what he said. He says, and then he goes on, he says that it says in the Old Testament, you shall not commit adultery. But I say, if you look at a woman and lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. What is he saying? It starts in the heart. There's a conception that takes place. This person that murdered, this person that committed adultery, that happened a long time ago, deep in their heart. It was conceived in their heart. 
That's what he's saying. That person began to entertain those thoughts and it began to take hold of their life because that desire, they were deceived and then they began to entertain those thoughts. That's, that's the idea here. Matthew 6, 21, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we all have a treasure. There's all, we all have something in our life that we're saying, if I have that, I'm going to really know what it means to live. Yes. And, and, and what is that? That. If it's anything other than, than Christ, then it becomes an over-desire, and you're being deceived, and you're letting it capture your heart and your mind. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. What are you treasuring? We're all treasuring something. We're all saying that about something or someone. Uh, you, you, can't, you can't live unless you're saying that about something or someone, but you're gonna, it's going to lead you to death if it's anything other than Christ. But, but we all have to have some sort of meaning and purpose and hope and happiness in life, and when we no longer have that, that's when, we're, that's when we become really in despair and even suicidal. But, so we all do that. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. So it's, it's not a sin to be tempted. It is a sin to give in to temptation. That's why I've always liked Martin Luther's quote here. I, I find it a bit humorous. I like it. He says, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. I like that. Don't look at me like that. That's, that's really rude of you to even, to even entertain the thought that no bird can nest in that guy's hair because he don't have none. Some of you don't get rid of that right now. Don't entertain those thoughts. Okay, I'm just joking with you, obviously. But I like that. I like that quote because he's saying, and, and by the way, have you thought about your thoughts lately? Ooh, that's, that's heavy. Thought about your thoughts? I mean, I get some really crazy thoughts. And some of you are looking at me like, I'll bet you do. And you do too. You just don't want to admit it. But I don't entertain those crazy thoughts. I mean, some of the thoughts, some of you have gotten really good about not entertaining. It's like, oh my goodness, I, where did that come from? It's like, ee, that's horrible. And that's what he's talking about here. It's not a sin that that thought came into your mind. It's what you do with that. Does that make sense? So it's whether or not you begin to entertain it. And that's what he's saying. So this, you begin to daydream, then desire when it has conceived. So the things you daydream about in your spare time are ultimately the things that you're living for. So what dominates your solitude? Hmm, let's think about that just for a moment. What dominates your solitude? I'll tell you what, when I began to think about what I was thinking and what began to dominate my solitude, when my mind was free to go to whatever my mind could go to because nothing was demanding my immediate attention, I realized, oh my goodness, the over-desires that I have, it typically had to do with people-pleasing, brain debates over the things that people had said and how I responded, and I, w I should have said this and that, and I went back and forth with that. And then, and then it was on work. Man, it just dominated. I, I need to get more done. I need to do more. I need to do this. Going through my list. And I realized, wait a minute, I'm a workaholic. I'm a perfectionist. Oh, I could have done a better job with that. And that, that was dominating my, because I've told myself, I've got to perform at a certain level for me to feel good about myself. I begin to look at my daydreams, those things where my mind goes. Here's another way of looking at it. So what dominates your solitude? What about, what about what's your worst nightmare? What would be your worst, absolute worst nightmare? It would be horrible to even think about, but you just, it would just wreck you. What about this? What unanswered prayers would cause you to defect from the faith? That if certain things don't happen in your life, then I'm throwing the towel in not following Jesus anymore. Well, you're not actually following Jesus. You're following the fact that you want that more than you want him, and you've kind of missed the whole, the whole idea, the whole point of that. What about this? What are your inconsolable emotions connect to, connected to? So just think about your inconsolable. What are those things, those emotions, those inordinate anxiety and 
maybe anger and despair, and you can't quite get over that, well, follow it back to what is it connected to? I'll guarantee you it's connected to a pseudo-savior or counterfeit God that's letting you down. That's why you have the despair. That's why you have the anxiety. It's a collapsing counterfeit God. And so you begin to look at those things and you go, wait a minute. I've told myself I believe a lot of lies. Anything that is more beautiful to your imagination and more satisfying to your heart than Christ is an over-desire. So if you're a healthy believer in Jesus Christ, you should be regularly, if not daily, lost in love, wonder, and praise to Jesus and all that he is and all that he's done for you, more so than anything else. What you should be daydreaming about, by the way, it's not daydreaming, it's actually worship. It's, it, we're all wired up to worship. And worship is ascribing ultimate worth and value to something or someone in such a way that it engages and energizes our whole being. And that's what you should be doing. If Jesus is everything the Bible says he is, oh my goodness. <laughs> it is amazing that we have him in our lives and all that we have in him because of what Christ has done. I'm forgiven. I'm reconciled to the Father, relationship with the God of the galaxies. I'm adopted into his family. I'm lavished with his love. I'm empowered by his Holy Spirit. I'm guaranteed heaven. That's amazing. You should be lost in that daily. And that's, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Here's the next word, disobedience. So you got desire, deception, daydream, and then it's disobedience. Disobedience, look at verse 15, gives birth to sin, gives birth to sin. So the disobedience I'm talking about here is more behavioral, and um, I think the disobedience actually start, starts back with the desire and the deception and the daydreaming. That's where the disobedience actually begins, but ben, you begin to see it acted out in our lives. Uh, J.C. Ryle, I also heard um, another theologian, R.C. Sproul, uh, say this too. He says, people fall in private long before they fall in public. So your behavior is the product of your beliefs. So it's the product of your desires, deception, daydreams. So where should you work on, on temptation and sin? Where do you begin to see the change? And, and I, I wish, I wish I would have known this, you know, two two, three decades ago. I didn't actually learn a lot of this until about, a, about a, within the last decade, and it's brought revolutionary change to my heart. And I, because much of mine and much of the teaching I was listening to was more about behavioral modification. By the way, a lot of Christian books out there, a lot of churches, if you listen carefully, it's a, it's a behavioral modification. It's not heart transformation. The, guys, the gospel is about heart transformation. And, and your behavior is the product of something much deeper. And so you gotta deal with that. So where should you start your work on, on temptation and sin? With the desire and the deception. And what's captivated your, your mind and your heart? What do you daydream about? What dominates your solitude? What stirs your deepest emotions? What moves you to action? That's where you, you fight the war. You've gotta fight it there. You might not like how you're acting out and you're living in a way that your behavior is not consistent with, with the scriptures, but it's not your behavior. That's symptomatic. You gotta start doing some deep heart work. That's what he's doing here. This is what he's helping us with. If you want to change your behavior, you must change what you worship. It's a worship problem. Because you worshiped your way into sin, therefore you must worship your way out out of sin because you were telling yourself oh if I have that ooh, you're thinking about it mm, a cabin in the mountains oh wouldn't that be wonderful oh, look at these magazines yeah ooh, ooh, ooh. that's a form of worship now there's a certain amount of that that's okay when we're doing it to the glory of God you can do those things to the glory of God but you can do it to the glory of yourself too it becomes an over desire in our lives that captivates us it becomes more important than our relationship with God and any number of things. 
But we worship our way into sin, therefore we must worship our way out. That's why I like what Augustine said, the key to change is not the acts of the will, but the loves of the heart. We are what we love. We are what we worship. That's why worship is so critical. Now, this leads to death. This leads to death. Verse 15, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So sin, sin fascinates us. And then it eventually assassinates us. That's what James is saying here. And the consequences of sin aren't always immediate. In fact, sin can be very pleasurable for a season, but just because there are no lightning bolts or calamities, it doesn't mean there aren't consequences coming. Don't confuse God's patience with his permission. So let's, let's talk about this. I mean, let's, let's work through this. So what is this death? I'm, I was thinking of that uh, story of Ralston you know, having to cut his arm off. He knew he was going to die. And I'm telling you, you're going to die. You will die if you don't understand this and begin to work out the implications of what James is saying. There's going to be some death that's going to come in your life. So what is the death? What are we talking about here? Death. Death is separation. When a person dies, their, their soul and their body separates. Their soul goes to be where it's going to be, whether heaven or hell, the Bible says, and their body's right here. So there's a separation. So this death that he's talking about here is, and, and, and we got to take it all the way back to the garden. Remember Adam and Eve, and all of us were meant to walk in the garden in the cool of the day, look into the face of our maker, and to receive from him all of the acceptance, security, significance we would ever need. Can you imagine looking into the face of your creator? And he says, you were created by me, for me, to give glory to me, and that's where you're going to be most satisfied. I love you. You are here by divine design. And so he just pours into our hearts and we have this abundance and we live out of that abundance. But because we believe the lie, we turned and became alienated from God. We turned against God in our rebellion and that spiritual alienation immediately produced within us a psychological alienation. We became empty because we turned away from the source of life and love and liberty and all good things because we thought we could discover it on our own. And it creates this psychological alienation, this, this emptiness, this inconsolable human longing. And so what do we do? It creates social alienation because we begin to, in our self-absorption and self-centeredness, which is really the essence of sin, when we've turned away from God and we become spiritually alienated and now we're psychological alienated, it creates social alienation because then everything in my life becomes a means to an end. My job, my family, my, my marriage because I'm trying to fill up the void that's deep within my heart that God was meant to, that he was the one that was supposed to fill that void up. So you can see, so that emptiness, that inconsolable human longing, and I begin to pursue anything and everything in my life, it creates brokenness. Because I begin to put demands on my marriage and my kids and all of this that crushes them under the weight of my unrealistic expectations because I'm trying to get from them what I should be getting from God. It creates all sorts of crazy brokenness in my life. And so you've got death as spiritual alienation, psychological alienation, social alienation, ultimately eternal alienation, hell. Because when you take your last breath on earth, you're going to take your next breath either in heaven or hell. And hell is eternal separation from God. But that, that spiritual alienation creating psychological alienation, creating a social alienation, I mean, we see it all around us, broken lives, broken homes. Because what happens is that if we try to live our life kind of by our own set of rules and I can determine what's right and wrong for me, we're living outside of God's order and design and that can't help but bring brokenness. You see, in his love and wisdom, he's saying, hey, this is how I want you to live. This is in your best interest. I love you. I want you to, to prosper in life. But when we turn away from that, obviously, we go against the, the grain. We go against the design that he has for us. It creates brokenness. All human problems are symptoms, and our alienation from God is the cause. Okay, so let's, let's transition here. 
let's move into the next part here. So what's kind of the cure to all of this? But before I do that, let me just say this, that, that if you struggle with temptation and sin, if you're struggling with it, praise God. Okay, that might sound crazy, but my struggle with temptation and sin is a sign that I'm alive in Christ. Because if there's no struggle, you might not be alive in Christ, okay? If, if temptation and sin doesn't bother you, then there, there's a problem. But the, it should, and there should be a struggle, and, and there should be a battle going on. And so that's important to keep in mind. Romans 7 makes that clear. And there's a number of other verses too. But let me tell you, let me share with you a Charles Spurgeon quote. This is what he says. And this is why it's so critical that we deal with this. And of course, we're heading towards death. We could talk more about that whole idea of death. But uh, Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Sin hardens the heart. Every sin makes room for another sin. And it is always easier to sin again after you have sinned once. Practice doesn't make perfect, but it makes permanent. There are pathways in our brain developed over time. I learned this by a number of books that I read, but back when I went through paramedic training, I went through anatomy and physiology class, and the doctors came in there, and they talked about what is known as the RAS, the reticular activating system. It's part of the brain, and it creates these pathways here. And so when I continue to sin, over time, it becomes more and more comfortable, and it creates this almost like a second nature to us. It becomes like automatic pilot. How many remember back when you learned how to drive? How many, how many can remember that? Some of you can't remember because it was a long time ago. And uh, yeah, it was a long time ago for me, but I do remember. And my mom taught me how to drive, and it was in an old Ford truck with three on the tree. You guys know what a three on the tree is? It's standard, you know, three on the tree, heavy clutch. And so learning, and you pop that clutch. And my mom would just laugh the whole time. I'm running over people on the sidewalk, running people off the road. She's just laughing. <laughs> she thought it was so funny. We both had whiplash after that, but other than that, everything was fine. But I remember that. But I, was, but I remember when I, was, when I was learning, I mean, I was like, you got you to shift, you know, do all that. And then I'm looking at the mirrors. I'm trying to pay attention. I got to drive. I got to put the clutch in at the right time. I can't pop it. I can't. Oh, my goodness, this is hard. But eventually it became second nature to me. Because I began to practice it and practice it and practice it. And over time, it's just like, boom, you just do it. Here's the deal with sin. And here's the deal with wanting to practice the right things in your life. You want God to be second nature. You want your heart to be so filled up with him that when sin comes your way, you go, no way. I'm going with him. It's second nature. It just becomes a part of your life. And, and that's, uh, that's why spiritual disciplines are so important. Classes like Game of Life and Discipleship 101, small groups. That's all really important. This, I read this also, too. It was interesting. I did some more research on Ralston's uh, biggest mistake. Outdoor experts said this, that Ralston's biggest mistake is that he went hiking alone and failed and failed to tell anyone. He needed accountability. You do, too. We all need it. Here's the last one. We're almost there. Every temptation can be overcome. And here's the thing. Created things were never designed to satisfy us, but are gifts from and pointers to the one who can. Oh, my goodness. I've been meditating on these two verses here this week. They're just rich verses. Verses 16 17, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Let me read to you from a book titled Eyes Wide Open, Steve DeWitt. Listen to what he says. He says, what if we were to realize that every sunset viewed, every sexual intimacy enjoyed, every favorite food savored, every song sung or listened to, every home decorated, and every rich moment enjoyed in this life isn't ultimately about itself, but is an expression and reflection of God's essential character. Wouldn't such beautiful and desirable reflections mean that their source must be even more beautiful and ultimately most desirable? While we were on our sabbatical, 
this summer, my, my wife made an apple pie, pumpkin pie, chocolate cream pie, coconut cream pie, all of which are pretty strong arguments for the existence of God. <laughs> Particularly the coconut cream pie, it's my favorite. And I believe that you can eat coconut cream pie for the glory of God. <laughs> Anybody agree with that? Just don't eat too much of it. But this is what we need to keep in mind. He gives us every good and perfect gift is from God. Coconut cream pie, that's a good gift. Thank you, Jesus. But who's the perfect gift? It's Christ. It's Jesus. Perfect gift. When we are born again, we are not only set free from the penalty but also the power of sin. This next statement has been really helpful for me. The power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's. So penalty is uh, our sin. We've been forgiven, and now he helps us with the power to overpower sin. And the way that we do that, the power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's. That's verse 18, by the way. Of his own will, he brought us forth by his own word. Brought us forth literally in the Greek means we're born again is what he means by that that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Being born again means God gives us a new heart. So we need a new heart. And no one sins because they have to, but because they want to. We sin because it offers a promise of happiness that enslaves us until we see that Christ is more desirable and satisfying than anything in life. And that happens when we are born again. This is how you know you're born again. You begin to realize that he's more, he's greater and he's better than all that life offers and that even that sin or uh, suffering and death could ever take away from us, that what you have in him is better by far and you realize, oh my goodness, he becomes more desirable, more satisfying than anything else in life. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Faith in Christ is more than agreement with facts in the head. It's an appetite for God in the heart that exceeds all other appetites. So the Bible tells us that Jesus is a friend of sinners that's us, that's all of us, and when you spend time with him, you want him more than the sin he finds you in. Quick illustration, and then I got two quotes, we're finished. Let's just say that I was talking to a group of high school and college students, and I was telling them that you can turn sexual desire on and off like a light switch. I told them that, and they look at me like, well, is that what happens to you when you get your age? And I would say, no, 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 we can all do this, even at your age. You can turn sexual desire on and off like a light switch. And so let's just say that you are a young male college student and you go over to your girlfriend's apartment to watch a movie, just the two of you. That's not very wise, by the way. One thing leads to another, your touching leads to kissing, your kissing leads to heavier kissing, and before long you have reached the point of no return physically, emotionally, sexually, and all of a sudden, in walks your girlfriend's Navy SEAL father who just returned from the battlefield of <laughs> Afghanistan. What happened to your sexual drive? It's off like a light switch. You didn't lose your sexual drive in that moment. Your sexual drive got displaced by a much bigger desire to stay alive. <laughs> it's called the expulsive power of a new affection. Look at the quote. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. Here's your homework. I want you to read Genesis 39 because what's so fascinating about it is that Joseph is not just concerned about Potiphar, who's the captain of the guards, mighty, powerful army of that day and time. He's more concerned about what God thinks about him and says about him. And Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph, but he overcomes the temptation, not because of Potiphar, because Potiphar is a captain of the guard, powerful Egyptian army, but he says this, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Powerful story. You need to read it. It's Genesis 39. And so, John Piper says, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long term 
than to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. That's what you see in Joseph. That's what we all need to learn. And so next weekend, we will look at how Scripture is the fuel for increasing our passion for Christ and finding satisfaction in Him. Let's pray. So God, thank you. Thank you that even while we were still sinners, you went to drastic measures to rescue and redeem and reconcile us back to yourself through the sacrificial love of your son, our savior on the cross. So may we now respond to your love by using, by us taking, taking drastic measures to remove any, any temptation or sin in our lives that would keep us from experiencing and enjoying and serving and obeying and loving you more and more. Help us to apply these truths to our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us for our joy and your glory. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys.